Hey, this is Scott. Hang around after today's episode for a big announcement about the podcast. Okay, on with the show. There are some people whose dream is to live on a boat and just spend their life sailing around the world. In fact, there's a company called Villa V that's hoping a lot of people want to do that. They have a cruise ship that holds 924 passengers, and they're offering a never-ending cruise that goes around the world every three and a half years. You can actually buy one of the cabins, starting for as little as $100,000. And you own that cabin, kind of like a floating timeshare, I guess. But you also have monthly maintenance fees. That's about $3,500 a month. So far, more than 30 people have put down a deposit to purchase a cabin. I've gone on a few cruises, and it can be a great way to vacation. But I don't think I'd want to spend years living on a cruise ship. Like most things, spending time at sea is wonderful, but in moderation. Today you'll hear from my guest, Suzanne. When she was just seven years old, she and her family got on a large sailboat and sailed away from their home in England. What she didn't expect was to spend the rest of her childhood on that boat. Suzanne told me about growing up on the boat, the good and the bad, and how she finally escaped. Real people in unreal situations. There is a girl hanging by her broken leg from the telephone wire. And I called 911 and I said, I found a baby. I turned around. I see a gun pointed at me close enough I could touch it. She would hold our heads underwater all the time. He levels the gun, pulls the trigger, and I go down. Her eyes were full of tears. She didn't want to leave us. My hair catches on fire. I swear to God, this, is, this image is burning my head for the rest of my life. I'm Scott Johnson, and this is What Was That Like? Hey, it's Scott, and guess what? You're about to hear an ad, and that's both good and bad. It's good because ads are what make it possible for me to keep bringing you these episodes, and it's bad because, well, maybe you don't like listening to ads, and I get that. And the good news is, you don't have to. When you sign up to support the show, you get every single episode without any ads. Plus, you get all the bonus episodes. Yeah, did you know there are actually bonus episodes? And you can try it all for free just to see what it's like. If you're on an iPhone, just go to the What Was That Like podcast and at the top, click on Try Free and you're in. On Android, just go to whatwasthatlike.com slash plus and try it out completely free. Once you've had the ad-free experience, you'll see why hundreds of other listeners are already doing it. But for now, here's another ad, and then on with today's episode. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. 
As a six-year-old child, would you say you were pretty happy? Yeah, I would. We were living in a house in the center, you know, near the center of England. I was going to school. I had a dog, Rusty, that I adored. Um, I had a best friend called Sarah. Um, I was enjoying school. That was fun. I'd been at school for kind of a couple of years by that point. Had a younger brother living in a house in a small um, small town in the UK. Everything seemed pretty normal. I remember being happy. I remember kind of playing in the garden on the swing. I remember doing a little bit of horse riding, going and staying over at my friend's house, all the normal things that you would expect that you'd be doing as a six-year-old girl. At that time, it was you, you were six, your younger brother, John, he's a year younger than you, right? That's right. And your two parents. When you were six, your dad called a family meeting and makes this big announcement. Do you remember that? I mean, at six years old, do you have the memory of that specific day? I do, because it was such a momentous moment in my life. I remember us all sitting around at the kitchen table in this house that we were living in in Warwick. And I remember my father basically announcing that he wanted to sail around the world. And this was before he'd found a boat, but he was utterly determined to do it. And I had no doubt in my mind when he said it that we were going to do it. I mean, I thought my father could do anything. And it wasn't a question for discussion. This was something that was going to happen. This was a big adventure that he decided that we were all going to go on together. Yeah. When you're that age, the kids don't usually really get a vote, right? I mean, no. this is what our family's doing. But you said you didn't even have a boat yet. Did, how did, did he know how to sail or how did, that, how did he expect to learn that? So he'd done some sailing. He'd done short distance sailing. So he had owned various small boats and he'd been to and fro across the channel from the UK to France and back. He'd been down to the Canary Islands and back a few times. So he'd never crossed an ocean. He'd never done satellite navigation, but he had sailed around the UK. So it was not impossible for him to come up with this idea. And as you say, as a, as a six-year-old child, I, I didn't really dispute it in the, in the slightest. You know, this was my father announcing a big ad adventure. And of course, I was going to go with him. Right, right. Yeah, you were definitely going to go, but you had some hesitation about this plan. Well, it was less hesitation about the plan and more that I knew I was going to leave a lot behind. And in particular, the things I knew I was going to leave behind and miss were my dog that I was very, very attached to, uh, Rusty, a water spaniel, who I never saw again, my friend, uh, Sarah, my best friend, I had other friends as well, but kind of Sarah was my kind of best friend. My doll's house, which I'd only just got for Christmas, actually. My father had kind of actually painted it crossing the channel, and I was very attached to that. Obviously, I was also going to leave behind all my other relatives, so everything I knew. So I remember being in two minds about the whole thing because I knew how much I was going to leave behind. But my father promised me that we will be back in three years when I was 10, and everything would be waiting for me. Looking back now, do you think your dad really intended at that time to be back in three years? I do. He had the whole voyage plotted out. And the whole idea was that he was going to follow Captain Cook around the world because it was the 200th anniversary of Captain Cook's third voyage around the world. And my maiden name is actually Cook. So he had this idea that we were going to honor Captain Cook by following him, following him around the world. I think also, to be honest, it was a bit of an excuse to raise money for this trip because we weren't a wealthy family. 
So there's no way he could have afforded to sail around the world without getting sponsorship, which he did. But because we were following Cook, we had, at least this was the intention setting out, a pretty prescribed route that was going to take us all the way around the world. And we were going to get to Hawaii after about three years. And then we were going to come straight back home through the Panama Canal, back to the UK and back to a normal life. It sounds exciting to me. I mean, was there a small part of you that was a little bit excited about this adventure you were going on? Oh, yeah. No, I was. And my father, of course, kind of talked the whole thing up. This was going to be a massive adventure. We were going to see more countries in the world than any of our friends would see. We were going to have adventures along the way. We were going to see whales and dolphins. I know my mother was very heavily sold on all the wonderful seafood she was going to get to eat once we hit the South Pacific. We were going to see incredible islands. The whole thing was going to be a massive adventure. And I believed all that. You know, that was going to be. And of course, I trusted my father, who I, you know, adored as a kind of hero, that this was going to be this incredible adventure. And then I was going to come back again. When the sailing finally began, you were seven years old at that point. And the boat that you guys got was called Wave Walker. Can you describe that boat? It was pretty big. It was quite big, but she was a very unusual boat. She was a one-off boat that uh, somebody else had built as a bit of a, a dream boat. She looked like a an old galleon in a way with a kind of raised deck at the back, poop deck at the back, with a smaller mast at the front and a bigger mast at the back. And she was 69 feet long, which is quite long for a boat. On the other hand, six feet at the front was the bowsprit, almost like a kind of plank at the front. So there's no space down below underneath that. And she was an incredibly narrow boat. So down below, there was nowhere near as much space as you might expect. So down below, you had a number of bunks, which were kind of two, two, in a, you know, two one on top of the other. A number of those, you had one table that sat about kind of four or five people, one kind of galley, kind of kitchen galley. One, most of the time, we only had one working head or toilet, although there was a second one, but it almost never worked. And my parents had an aft cabin in the back, which had another couple of berths. So down below, there wasn't a lot of space. I mean, there was no private space. All I ever had was a bunk and, a, you know, obviously we had the kind of shared toilet that we could use. You had mentioned that the, the planned route was to follow Captain Cook's route, but you guys sailed around the world in what you termed the wrong direction. Why is that and what, what does that mean? Well... So Captain Cook on his third voyage was going in search of a northwest passage around the top of what we now know as Canada. And in doing so, the way in which he wanted to get there from the UK was to sail from west to east, because that he felt was the kind of the best way to get there. Now, most people who sail around the world sail from east to west. And if you sail from east to west, the winds go that direction near the equator. So what you do is you go all around the all the way around the world from east to west, you're sailing fairly near the equators. Uh, the winds tend to be much gentler because you're up near the equator. The seas also tend to be much better because there's quite a lot of land that breaks up the, the, the waves. So generally that's the way in which everybody goes. They go kind of through the Red Sea, through the Mediterranean, you know, kind of round round the world around the equator. Captain Cook went the other way. And because he was going the other way, to catch the wind, what you have to do is go very, very far south. 
And that meant that to follow Captain Cook, we had to sail all the way down from the UK to South America and then across the southern Atlantic Ocean, which is the most dangerous ocean in the world, and then uh, well, one of the most dangerous oceans in the world, and then from South Africa to Australia, which probably is the most dangerous ocean in the world, the southern Indian Ocean, an ocean which I was talking to a sailor the other day. They'd never heard of somebody trying to cross that ocean, the southern Indian Ocean, with small children on board. And your dad was the only one in the family who knew how to sail. Did he initially plan on doing this all his own, on his own? Or I know you had crew members from time to time. Well, his initial plan was to take some crew on board who were going to part pay for the voyage. But what happened was they all dropped out before the start of the voyage because they decided the voyage was going to be too dangerous. So when we set sail from the UK, we had three crew on board. One of them actually knew how to sail, Owen, because he had actually sailed on a kind of cross-ocean trip to get to the UK. He was an Australian. The other two were novices. So we had my father who had some sailing experience around the UK. We had Owen who had quite a lot of sailing experience. We had two novice crew. My brother and me were seven and six years old, so we're not really going to do very much sailing. And my mother, who it turns out hates sailing and gets very, very badly seasick. And so disappears into her cabin for several days every time we set sail because she's so badly seasick. So my father's plan, given that he knows my mother gets very seasick and we're so tiny, is that he will take a few crew with him from each port. But what becomes clear as well after a while is it's very difficult living with other people on the boat. I mean, that's part of the whole story. It's a very confined space. So they fall out with the crew quite often. So quite early on, unfortunately, we lose Owen. So he only comes with us as far as South Africa. And then after that, we really only have novice crew on board. In, in the most dangerous ocean in the world. That's right. When we set sail from South Africa to, cut, to cross the most dangerous ocean in the world, the Southern Indian Ocean, we had on board only two novice crew members, Larry and Herbie, who'd never sailed before. Unbelievable. Yeah, you mentioned your mother, and that's one of the things that I found interesting about this whole thing. Did she know ahead of time that she was prone to seasickness? I'm assuming that she did because my she had done some sailing with my father before we went. I mean, she'd been on a few of these uh, voyages. She also knew that she didn't like sailing because she writes in her diary about not really liking sailing, not liking getting wet. You know, I don't know if she knew quite how badly seasick she would get. And obviously, I don't recall a kind of conversation with her about it before we set sail. But she did know that she didn't like sailing. So she really went on this voyage because if my father was going to go, she was going to go with him, even though she really didn't want to go and she didn't really want to be there. Can you talk about when you encountered the capital letter W, the wave? That was in the Indian Ocean, right? That's right. We set sail from South Africa. So we're still in our first year of travel. We've gone down to South America, across to South Africa. We set sail from South Africa with these two novice crew on board. And about a week out of South Africa, and this is a, a six-week trip to go from South Africa to Australia. So about a week, a week and a half into it, we hit a terrible storm. The waves start building up and they're getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And the problem down there is there's no landmass to break up the waves, so they just 
continue to to build. And eventually we're sailing in waves that are 30 feet high. And my father is trying to get take the boat down each wave in a perpendicular way. So the boat is perpendicular to the wave because if you at all twisted it, the boat would flip. I mean, that's how dangerous it was. And he started towing lines off the back of the boat to try and slow the boat down. And eventually what happened was several waves combined together, we believe. And my father looked behind himself and saw this enormous wall of water, which was 90 feet high. It was, it was as high as our main mast, which was 60 foot high and kind of way above it. So he kind of estimated it was kind of 90 foot high. And this wave was so enormous that it curled over the boat, which was you know 69 feet long. It hit us halfway down the boat, kind of 35 feet, kind of dip from the from the back of the boat, from the stern of the boat, went straight through the deck, out the side of the boat. Now, I'm a little girl still. I'm standing downstairs in the galley in the kitchen with my mother, helping her to try and make some food because we hadn't eaten for several days, really. I mean, in a storm, you can't really do anything. And I was kind of picked up when this happened, flung against the, the ceiling of the cabin, against the wall of the cabin. I broke my skull, fractured my skull, broke my nose. My father was flipped overboard, but came back on board with his life harness. But I was really quite badly injured when the wave hit. And you're out in the middle of the ocean. What was the plan at that point? I mean, he couldn't really tend to you because he still had to sail the boat. That's right. I mean, the other reason why the sailing was so dangerous is we were sailing alone. So we weren't sailing with other boats. We also had very limited communication facilities on board. We had the ability to send out a mayday, which he did, but got no response to it. But otherwise, we just had a radio that could only be used close to shore. So there was no way we would get a hold of anybody with that. I mean, equipment in general was incredibly limited on the boat. This is before satellite navigation. So all we had was a sextant, really. Didn't even have a fridge on board. I mean, very, very basic. So we were incredibly lucky that about three days later, we came across a tiny atoll in the middle of the Indian Ocean. And if you, you know, if listeners kind of look at the Indian Ocean, the Southern Indian Ocean, they'll see there's almost nothing in it. But if you really zoom in, you'll find a tiny little atoll called Ar- Arl Amsterdam. And we were incredibly lucky that my father guessed which way we should navigate because he couldn't see the sun or the stars, so we couldn't work out where we were. And we found this atoll about three days later. But by that point, my head was enormous. I mean, my head, my, you know, this fractured skull, I had a huge blood clot on my head that became absolutely enormous. And when we found this island, it had a tiny little French base on it uh, with a doctor. And he operated six or seven times on my head, but unfortunately didn't have any suitable anesthetic. So it was all done with no anesthetic. So I remember it being incredibly painful. And again, I'm still a little girl of seven years old. So not only do you have the trauma of being shipwrecked in the middle of the ocean, but then these multiple operations on my head and neither of my parents joined me for those. You know, they, my mother didn't like operations. She said that she hated kind of blood, so she wouldn't come in with me. And my father was kind of busy trying to patch the boat together. So as a little girl, as you can imagine, at this point, I'm really quite traumatized by the whole experience. I was traumatized just reading about it. I mean, <laughs> and we'll talk about your book. You've detailed all these things, but... Yeah, you had, and this was over a period of several days, multiple surgeries. So after the first time, you knew what it was like with having surgery when you were, you're awake, no anesthesia, 
It's just endure the pain. And then the next day or a couple days later, you had to make that trip back to that surgery room and you knew it was going to happen again and multiple times. Why didn't your dad at that point think, okay, hang on, I'm, my family is in danger. Do you think he ever had that thought? I don't think he did. I mean, my father has written his own account of the first year and a half of our voyage, which covers the shipwreck and covers us getting all the way to Australia and then his decision to keep sailing. And at no point in that book does he ever really say that he considered not sailing or express any sort of regret or you know, serious concern for the welfare of the family. I think for my father, he was absolutely passionate. This was his dream. This is what he was going to do. He was going to be a hero. He was going to be recognized for doing this incredible voyage. And to some extent, my brother and me, and almost my mother as well, we were all along for the ride. So long as we weren't getting in the way of that, there would be a little bit of consideration for us. But really, this was about his dream and what he was going to do. Throughout this whole story, I detected sort of a cloud of misogyny throughout. If it was John, your brother, that had been injured, do you think anything would have changed? Or was it, was it because of the fact that it was you and you're the, you're the girl? So you're right. There was a huge amount of misogyny, which becomes more and more evident as the, as the tale goes on, actually. I don't remember too much misogyny at that early stage, but of course I may not have noticed it because I'm only six, seven years old. So I, I don't know if I would have spotted it. There definitely was a, you're a little girl. So, I mean, the reason why I was standing in the galley at the point where the wave hit was my, my brother had been sent up to the front of the boat to get a tool for my father was there were very gender defined roles, which became even more extreme as time went on. And certainly, as time went on, I became very conscious of the fact that, you know, the concern for my welfare was much lower than the concern for my brother's welfare. The concern for his education was much greater than the concern for my education. I was expected to kind of work down below cooking and cleaning. He wasn't. You know, he was expected to ha kind of have fun. He was a boy. So all of that became very clear later. I don't remember it then. So I really don't know. I, I actually have a suspicion that. My father would have continued almost regardless with the voyage. I mean, that the voyage was the overriding priority that he had. And you said during the storm, he was actually flung overboard. How did he describe that when he was writing about it? Because you didn't even know that right away. No, I mean, he was flung overboard because he was on the wheel. He surfaced and he actually thought that he, you know, that that was it because he couldn't actually see the boat, he wrote in his book, when he kind of came up above the water. And he says, you know, that everything kind of went through his head, you know, kind of, and he talks about, he thought about why he'd started the voyage, and he talked about what he'd kind of done to kind of get to that point. Um, he'd actually met a gypsy in the UK who'd read his fortune before setting sail, who'd predicted that he was going to live to an old age. So one of his overriding thoughts he write, writes in his book is, well, you know, she was wrong. You know, I always knew she was wrong. I never believed in fortunes. The odd thing is, for me, reading his account, is he never says that he thought, maybe I shouldn't have been here. Maybe I shouldn't have brought two little kids and a wife who doesn't like sailing 
into the most dangerous ocean in the world, he doesn't think, what will they do if I don't get back on board? You know, have I just, you know, not only sacrificed myself, but sacrificed my family? None of that is kind of present in his book. It's really very much about the voyage and, and the decisions that he's made to, to get to that point. Something I've been recently making a deliberate effort with is to read more. There are lots of books I want to read, and I try to read every day, even if it's just a few pages. That little bit each day adds up, and it can make a big difference. It's like taking care of your gut. Even though it's not big, it supports the health of your whole body. Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic benefits not just your gut and your heart, which aren't outwardly visible, but your skin too, which you can see. Every morning it's the same thing. Two capsules of Seed DSO-1. And sometimes I wonder, is it normal to feel this great? It helps support digestive health with optimal gut bacteria levels. And thankfully that's all backed up by science. And all the supporting data is on their website. If you're trying to avoid sugar, soy, peanuts, or gluten, you're good to go. And I was reading the literature and I thought, you had me at vegan because it's that too. And if you have kids, DSO-1 is the first multi-strain symbiotic shown to be tolerable and health-promoting in a cohort of children aged 3 to 17. And you can use this promo code to give it a try. Trust your gut with Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic. Go to seed.com what and use code 25what to get 25% off your first month. That's 25% off your first month of Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic at seed.com slash what, code 25what. I don't know how many other people do this, but I like to plan my weekly meals. Maybe I'm just weird, but I like quick and easy. That's just one of the benefits you can get with Cook Unity. Go to cookunity.com slash what or enter code what before checkout to get 50% off your first week. One of the dishes I recently had was the Green Goddess Falafel Bowl. Oh, I loved it. The falafel was seasoned perfectly, and I love how crispy it is on the outside, but really moist on the inside. It's a signature dish of Enat Admoni. She's known around the world as a chef. You've probably seen her on TV, and her dishes are made right here in Florida, so I'm supporting local business, and I love that. And the convenience of Cook Unity is crazy. I mean, I've got podcast episodes to produce. I don't have time for cooking. These meals are delivered fully cooked. So when it's time to eat, I pick a meal based on my mood for that day. I heat it for a few minutes and enjoy. The menus are updated every week, so there's always something new to try. You can choose from over 350 meals based on your dietary needs or taste preferences, or go wild and have Cook Unity pick for you, because every meal is just amazing. Make the best meal plan ever with the convenience, chef-level quality, and endless variety of Cook Unity. Go to cookunity.com slash what or enter code what before checkout for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using code what or going to cookunity.com slash what. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. 
you could argue that a lot of explorers and people of that nature will make huge sacrifices. I mean, and, and arguably you would never want to be a member of their family. I mean, even Cook himself basically set sail multiple times, left his family behind, eventually was killed in Hawaii and never came home. And we admire these people often, but I think it's very hard to be a member of their family because the family really doesn't get a lot of consideration. Beyond the physical dangers, kids are supposed to see a doctor for regular checkups. How often did that happen? Well, basically pretty much never. I mean, I saw the doctor when I was operated on, on Isle Amsterdam. And then I remember once seeing a doctor, I mean, so we're now talking about a span of a decade that I was on the boat. I remember once seeing a doctor in Queensland, Australia, because I started to get very bad asthma on the boat. The boat, as she started to decay and get older, she became dustier and dirtier. And I was expected to sweep the cabin floor down below. It was another one of those tasks my brother was never asked to do. And it used to make me incredibly wheezy. But unfortunately, my mother was not hearing any, you know, she thought that was just an excuse. And eventually, I managed to see a doctor in Queensland and was diagnosed with asthma. And I was once hospitalized with it because I because it became so bad when I was um, in Sydney. But apart from those two times, I never remember seeing it. Uh, a doctor. I don't remember seeing a dentist in the whole of the of, of the, the kind of ten years. I may have done once. I have a vague memory that my father went to the dentist in Hawaii once, and I saw a dentist very very briefly. But basically, there was no no medical care, no kind of dental care. Often, very limited food on the boat. Sometimes we ran out of water on the boat. But that's not even getting on to some of the other things I'm sure we'll talk about with kind of friendships and all sorts of other things that you can't do when you're trapped on a boat. Yeah. And that was my next thing. A big part of childhood is making friends. Was that ever even possible? I mean, you did stop some places. That's right. So we stopped a few times. We stopped in Hawaii for a while and I made friends there. And I talk about them in the book, uh, Sandy and Heidi. We stopped in Australia at one point and I made friends there because I finally, finally managed to get to school for a little while. But the vast majority of my childhood, I didn't have other friends. I didn't have friends to play with. I, ha I had my brother, but once we got a little bit older, because my parents and particularly my mother was so different in how she treated us. So my, my relationship with my mother massively deteriorated and she really seemed to dislike me and was very unpleasant to me on the boat. She used to call me names and not speak to me for kind of days or weeks on end. Whereas my brother was a little bit of a, a little prince on the boat. He could do no wrong. And so that the effects of kind of treating two children in such different ways is really interesting. It kind of forces you apart because I knew that if we ever had a conflict, I'd be punished and he wouldn't be. Whereas I think if we'd both been treated in a similar way, in a difficult situation, we would have come closer together. So on the boat, because I didn't really have him, I was really incredibly isolated. So I would create imaginary friends. Uh, I started writing a diary very extensively, and I would pretend the diary was a person. You know, I would talk to the diary because I would have nobody else to talk to. I tried to write to the friends that I'd occasionally found in port, but that was very difficult because... First of all, as a child, it's very hard. I mean, it's not an immediate. You know, you want to talk, talk to people about the things that are happening to you then. And sometimes people have said to me, well, surely you saw other kids on other boats. 
And occasionally we did. But the problem is, particularly as you become an older child, you don't want to see a friend. You don't want to meet another child for a day and have a play date with them. And then you both sail off in different directions. That's even assuming that you happen to meet another boat with a child the same age and ideally the same kind of gender as you are. What you want is a friend that you can build a relationship with, that you can kind of share things with and talk to about all of your problems. So, no, I didn't have that for most of my childhood. What were the good things about growing up on a boat? I mean, it wasn't all bad, right? No, it wasn't all bad at all. And I think, by the way, I think there's definitely ways to do this in a much more positive way because there are some very good parts of it. I mean, first of all, you get to see a part of the planet that a lot of people never get to see. It is incredible to me, in a way, how few people get to really spend time on the ocean. And if you spend time on the ocean, you get to see, as my father originally promised, we saw whales and dolphins, phosphorescence in the water. We once sailed past a volcano that was exploding kind of out of the ocean. I remember the kind of the lava running down the sides and exploding when it hit the water. You get to go to an incredible different assortment of different places and cultures and people and meet them. And I think to this day, I have a real appreciation of the fact that there are many, many different ways for people on this planet to create civilizations and ways of living which are equally valid. And I grew up with that kind of understanding along the way. So there were some very positive things about this in moderation. Your education, you were quote-unquote homeschooled. How did that work? Well, basically it didn't. And this is one of the problems. I think if anybody had asked my parents, they would say that my mother was teaching us. But the reality was she, she wasn't. And of course, this is incredibly hard for somebody outside of a family unit and even to see, and even more so when you're on a boat where nobody can see what's happening inside a boat. And in fact, I don't ever remember anybody asking. The reality of it was that when we first set sail from England, my mother had a pile of worksheets, math and English worksheets, um, and she was a primary school teacher. And slightly sporadically over about the first 18 months or so, she would occasionally give us a worksheet to work through. But she was incredibly impatient with me when I was doing the worksheets. But well, we did do them, and I, I liked doing them. But then she kind of stopped. She said, well, I don't really feel like I, I kind of want to teach a, a kind of more senior curriculum, so I'm not going to. So then we had quite a few years where we had no education at all. And I was desperate to get an education. I remember being desperate to get an education and I was writing my diary about being desperate to get an education. And people have said to me, but surely you were getting the university of life. You know, surely you were just seeing stuff and that's an education. And from somebody who was, who experienced it on the other side, I would argue very strongly against that. I, I wanted to be a scientist and sitting on a boat where all you've got is a, a kind of slightly motley collection of books that we traded in the secondhand stores, which often were a kind of collection of romance books and a few kind of science fiction books. You can't teach yourself kind of chemistry, physics, mathematics. I, I couldn't answer all the questions that I wanted to ask about the world. You know, I, I didn't understand, you know, what's in the air, what makes the air, you know, kind of why are, why are the stars up in the sky, you know, just explain to me how the world worked. I couldn't work that out. And I was desperate to get an education. 
and desperate to have friends. But it was just very, very hard for a long time on the boat. And it wasn't something that my parents regarded as particularly important. I know a lot of kids would be excited about never having to go to school. How did John feel about that? Did he care? So John cared a lot less than I did. I think he, and by the way, it's very interesting. I've had quite a few ex-boat kids contact me since my book came out. And of the ones who contacted me, most of them are women. And I don't know why it is that girls seem to find this world very hard to cope with. But it may be that girls mature a little bit earlier, perhaps. Uh, I hate using kind of generalizations, but they may have a kind of desire for education that kicks in earlier than boys and a desire for those deeper friendships that kicks in earlier than boys. Girls are definitely more vulnerable. So, you know, I realized quite early on when I started to kind of hit puberty that I couldn't go ashore on my own. You know, I would be very, very vulnerable. So I had to often stay on board because it would be too dangerous to go ashore on my own. So as a boy, you have much more freedom. So it's a much more fun life. My brother was allowed to be on deck working the sails, whereas I wasn't. In fact, my father only had one set of safety equipment that a boy could use, and he gave that to my brother. Uh, so I had to kind of stay below. So I don't think he felt the same overwhelming desire to get an education that I did. But to be honest, he was still denied an education. So whether or not a child wants an education, I personally think, and I'm a parent myself, that we have an obligation as parents to give and encourage our children to get an education because it massively affects their life chances if they don't have that. Yeah, that's one of the basics of being a good parent. And you mentioned as you were becoming a teenager and you really had no private space, one working toilet for all the family and all the crew, and this really baffled me, you had to share a cabin with adult crew members, you being a teenager, and these were strangers. Your dad didn't see that as dangerous at all? No, he never did. And in fact, I remember at one point, I was very distressed about it because we had one particular, I'm, by this time I'm about 15 or 16, so I'm very conscious of my vulnerability by that time because enough things have happened to most girls by that point, even if they're relatively mild, that you're very conscious even if so nothing really bad has happened. You've got to be careful. And we had this trip, and I talk about it in the book, where we had all-male crew. And by this point, my father is taking multiple crew on board. They're all novices, so none of them can sail. And what he's doing is he's charging them to come on the boat. So he's effectively turned, he's turned Wavewalker into a kind of traveling hotel in order to fund this voyage, which by now has gone on multiple years past the original promise of it, of it being kind of three years. I was expected to cook and clean for all these crew with my mother, which was taking kind of hours each day. But what worried me even more was my brother basically said, you know, I want to kind of take the one kind of cabin that only has kind of two berths. And I refused to share it with Sue because my brother, of course, he knew that he was the, and any kind of listeners who've been in that kind of family unit situation where you have a very favored child and a very unfavored child, Unfortunately, if you're the favored child, I suspect the inclination is to kind of play on that. So he didn't want to sit, he didn't want to share a cabin with the unfavored child. And therefore, my father said, well, you know, therefore you'll have to share with the crew in the, you know, either one of the, the, the other four birth cabin or the two birth cabin. And I said to my father, but they're all men. I mean, they're all grown men. He said, well, that's not my problem. You know, it's John's turn to have the small cabin 
and he doesn't want to share with you. So you'll just have to get on with it or share a cabin with your mother. And if anybody who kind of reads the story and gets to this point will realize that sharing a cabin with my mother is a pretty kind of horrific thing for me to have to do because of the way in which she was treating me by that point. But for me, that was a better thing to do than to share with a, you know, a group of kind of adult men that I didn't know. I mean, I was, you know, I had enough awareness to know that that was a, a kind of dangerous thing to do. So that's what I did. And of course, that, that meant that my mother was very nasty to me while I was sharing a cabin to her, but at least I was physically safe. Eventually, you figured out that going home after three years was obviously not in the plans, but obviously you couldn't leave. You're on a boat. There's nowhere you could go, and you're still just a teenager. You finally convinced your parents to allow you to enroll in a correspondence school. How did that work? Well, so what we did is I convinced them to let me enroll in an Australian correspondence school. And what the way in which it worked is they gave me a whole pile of lessons and books. They were quite incomplete. So the problem was that I wanted to study sciences, physics and maths and biology and so on. But a lot of those courses were not properly written. So they were kind of half-written courses. So that was kind of problem number one. Problem number two, of course, is if you're going to do correspondence by post, and we have to remember that we're pre-internet, uh, and of course, we have no communication devices on the boat, really. So I can't ring anybody or anything like that. And we don't have an address. So what I would do is I would work on these lessons when I wasn't expected to do chores on the boat. And then when we hit a port, I would post these letters back to Australia. And then I would go and ask my father, where are we going next? And I would ask my school to send the lessons back to the next place that we were going to be. The issue was that there aren't that many places by this point we were in the South Pacific that actually have a proper post office. So often we would only get to a town with a post office every six weeks, couple of months, every three months. And sometimes my father would change direction. You know, we would be heading towards Samoa and all my lessons would be coming back to Samoa and we'd get halfway there and he'd change his mind and we'd go to Fiji. So I would never get them back because the, the post offices would destroy them if they weren't collected. And then, of course, on the boat... I had to fight for space with these crew and fight for time because I had to do the chores. So there was loads of things that were making it difficult, but I had this burning desire to educate myself because I knew that that was my only escape route from the boat. I mean, I didn't know if it was going to work. I mean, it's a bit like it's a bit like kind of sitting in a in a kind of prison cell braiding a rope and not knowing whether it's going to be long enough to get you out the window and down to the earth but you haven't got another alternative and you know it's a possibility. And that's what it felt like for me with education. And of course, the other thing was it was something I could control. In this world where I had no control over anything, I didn't even have control over where we were going. In fact, most of the time I didn't even know where we were going next. My father often wouldn't tell us where we were saving next. The schoolwork was something that I could control. That was, that was mine. And so it, it really did become a lifeline. Can you talk a little bit about Teddy and Barnaby? Ah. I, and I, I, we can see each other, even though the listeners can't see us. And there's a big smile when well. I mention those names. I'm thinking, when, when I heard about them, I was thinking they were there for you, sort of like in the movie Castaway, where Tom Hanks had Wilson. Is that an analogy that would work? Yeah, no, absolutely. I remember seeing that movie and feeling exactly the same way. So Teddy was my teddy bear. 
that was with me when we first set sail from England. And he survived the whole voyage. And in fact, he's upstairs. You know, I'm talking to you from my house in London, and Teddy is sitting upstairs on a on a sofa upstairs in one of the bedrooms. And he's sitting with Barnaby, who also came back to England with me. I always think of Barnaby as being a bit more useful because Barnaby only came on board in Australia after we were shipwrecked. In fact, the Barnaby story is amazing. This man saw the articles. There were lots of articles in Australia about this family being shipwrecked and this little girl who was very badly injured. And this man ran a toy factory and he appeared down on the docks one day with a bag of toys for my brother and a bag of toys for me because he also read that we'd lost all of our Christmas presents because they were all swept away by the wave. And in that bag was Barnaby. There were, there were kind of some other things as well, but Barnaby was in that bag and Barnaby stayed with me all the way through. And I would talk to them. I mean, these, these animals, in, in a world where you don't have anyone to talk to, these animals take on real human dimensions. I also made up imaginary friends, so that was very helpful. And then this is even more bizarre, possibly, to the listeners. The boat herself was a bit of a human-ish presence. You tended to think of the boat. I mean, boats always referred to as women. And she had a slightly kind of maternal presence. So in a way, the boat was also a a person in a world where I didn't have a lot of relationships or people to talk to because my mother, you know, really wouldn't talk to me a lot of the time, certainly once I was past about 12. And my father was generally busy sailing, so I had very little time. Imagine unlocking a version of yourself that's unstoppable, where mental barriers no longer hold you back. Listen to Mentally Stronger with me, Amy Morin, therapist and international best-selling author, here to guide you on a journey to reaching your greatest potential. Every Monday, I bring you into conversations with some of the most fascinating minds, experts, authors, entrepreneurs, athletes, and musicians. They don't just share stories. They reveal the mental strategies that propelled them to the top. But here's the real magic. At the end of each episode, I break down their wisdom into practical therapist-approved advice. In my solo episodes, I dive deep into the techniques that build mental strength. It's like having your own personal therapy session as you discover how to turn these insights into steps you can take right now. This podcast isn't just for those facing mental health challenges. It's for anyone who wants to push their limits, achieve peak performance, and truly thrive. Are you ready to unlock your full potential? Then it's time to become mentally stronger. Subscribe to Mentally Stronger with therapist Amy Morin, available wherever you love to listen to podcasts. Hey, my name's Otis Gray, host of The Daily Book Club, a daily podcast where I read wonderful old books one chapter at a time. Simple as that. Whether you want to get engaged and lost in a fascinating story that has stood the test of time, or just relax to a good book, listen to The Daily Book Club to get wrapped up or unwind during your day. We'll read classic stories like Pride and Prejudice, The Enchanted April, The Wind in the Willows, beautiful stories all told from start to finish. And you can even do a real book club. Tune into the Daily Book Club Discord and discuss the readings with other book club listeners. However you want to listen, it's your choice. Subscribe to the Daily Book Club on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and everywhere else. New episodes every single day. So sit back, relax, and get lost in the Daily Book Club. 
I'll confess, sometimes I let my podcast playlist get out of hand and I get way behind. But there's one show that I subscribe to and any new episode goes right to the top of the queue. That's the Jordan Harbinger Show. That's because I never have to figure out, okay, is this one going to be interesting or do I wait for the next one like I do for some shows? Because Jordan's conversations are always a must-listen for me. He talks to fascinating people from any category you can think of. Authors, scientists, athletes, you name it. He's talked to undercover cops who posed as mafia and the actual career mafia hitmen. And the stories he gets out of these people, just incredible. In one episode, he talked to Paul Holes. You might know that name if you're into true crime. He's the former investigator who uses really advanced methods to solve cold cases, including the Golden State Killer. And another one I really enjoyed was with Sam Harris, an author and neuroscientist who promotes skepticism, and he doesn't mind taking on some seriously controversial topics like politics or religion. That one's going to make you think. Whenever a new episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show pops up, I already know it's going to be an episode that I'll enjoy listening to, and I'll bet you will too. For some episode recommendations, check out jordanharbinger.com start, or search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. When you were 16, you were left by your parents in New Zealand, you and John, who at that time, of course, was 15. What was your feeling about this? Were you glad to be off the boat and taking classes, or did you feel abandoned by your parents? I felt abandoned because what happened was they left John and me behind and they continued sailing. And they had promised they weren't going to do that. What was, go- what was supposed to happen, what they promised to me, was that my mother was going to keep sailing on the boat with another skipper because they wanted to keep on taking these paying crew. And my father was going to stay with us and look after my brother and me in New Zealand. I was going to have to keep on doing this correspondence, but they wanted him to go into normal school because they were very concerned about his education. As my father said to me at one point, your brother's education is very important because at one point he's going to grow up and have to look after a family. So they were very concerned that my brother should go to school because he hadn't been educating himself, really. And then at the last moment, my father turned around and said, I'm going sailing as well. And he disappeared, leaving me and my brother on our own. And making it very clear that my role here was to cook and clean for my brother and look after him and, in effect, be his parent to the extent that I could as a 16-year-old girl with a 15-year-old boy, while, of course, I was still trying to educate myself by post. And he also left me with the responsibility of running his business, trying to find these crew who were going to go on the boat and pay him money to sail. And I really, really struggled. I mean, I struggled so much that I think actually, and I've talked quite openly about this, I think halfway through that year, I effectively had a breakdown. I ended up ringing something which in the UK is called Childline, in New Zealand is called Youthline, and you effectively, you ring up and you speak to a counsellor. And I remember just describing to her my situation. You know, I'm a 16-year-old girl. I'm here living on my own with my younger brother. I don't know any adults in New Zealand apart from somebody in Auckland who lives hours away who I can't go and see because my car will never get that far. And I can't cope. 
I can't cope with all the things that I'm being expected to do. I've never really lived for any long period of time away from my family. I don't know any of my relatives. I'm living in a foreign country. I don't even have a visa that's valid for me to stay here very long. And in fact, the New Zealand authorities tried to throw me out twice because they discovered that I was there as an underage child. And so I really, really struggled. I mean, I have to say, the woman who I rang up on this kind of uh, on this counseling phone call was incredible. I mean, and I've talked about this a little bit since. It is amazing how powerful it can be when you're in a very desperate situation just to have somebody who will listen to you. And that's what she did. And it, it was incredible. In fact, I think it was almost the first time in my entire childhood that an adult had stopped and listened to me. Just to take an interest in you. Just yeah. take an interest and, and just listen to me for as long as I needed to talk. I did a lot of crying as well, I think, but as long as I needed to talk. And then that really helped me get myself back together, at least enough to get through the rest of that time in New Zealand and to keep studying. One of the things I noticed in this story about your dad is he never has the option of giving up. It's like, no, okay, the boat's destroyed. We're out of money. I don't know where we're going next, but hey, we'll figure it out. It'll, it'll all work out. No worries. Do you think some of that was passed on to you? Because you were in a really stressful situation there as well, and somehow you got through it. I think you're right. I mean, the funniest thing about all of this is, is, as you mentioned, it was a very gendered world. But the very odd thing about it is the person who was most like my father is me. And I've always kind of recognized that. You know, I, 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 I mean, now I hope that I haven't used that determination in the way that he did. So I, I do apply it to myself. I, I kind of put a lot of pressure on myself to achieve things and do things. And, you know, there's so many things I want to kind of do right now. I feel very passionate about getting, getting other kids to get access to education. So I push myself very hard, but I, I have children of my own and I've never kind of denied them an education. I mean, I've tried to give them the sorts of childhood that I would have wanted, but you're right. I think there's a lot of my father in me and a lot of those characteristics are huge strengths if used in the right sort of way. Getting accepted into college, that seemed like quite a long shot for that to happen. It was. And looking back, I think I realized even more now what a long shot it was. But when I was there, although I realized, I guess I realized it was a long shot, but you see, the thing is I had no other option. So I don't remember sitting around thinking, how big a long shot is this or not? It was like, this is my only shot. So <laughs> that's like, there's no plan B, right? There's no plan B. So uh, it's not that I'm weighing up alternatives and odds of different routes. This was my only route. I, there I am. I'm a 16, 17 year old girl living in New Zealand. I'm an alien, so I can't stay there. I'm going to have to leave. I've never seen any of my relatives since we left England 10 years before. I desperately want to go to university. Uh, you know, I'm really kind of craving kind of education. So what I do is I write, write to every university I've ever heard of in the world. And of course, I have no uh, nowhere to go to get the addresses. So I make up the addresses. So I write to 
London University, London, England, and um, you know Sydney University, Sydney, Australia, Harvard University, Harvard, America, London, uh, Oxford, Cambridge. They tended to be the elite universities, not because I thought I was elite, but because those were the only ones I'd ever heard of. Because somehow, even living on a boat, you've heard of a Harvard or an Oxford, because somehow they, they're in the conversation or they're in a book or they're somewhere. And most of these universities wrote back and said, absolutely no way, we won't consider you. I mean, uh, Australia and New Zealand wouldn't consider me because I, I had a British passport. Harvard never wrote back because it turned out that Harvard University, Harvard America is not the right address, which is slightly unfortunate. London wrote back and said, you're just too, it's just too crazy a story. We can't consider you. But amazingly, Oxford wrote back and said, write us two essays. And I did. And then they said, if you can find a way to get back here, we'll interview you. And so I went and picked kiwi fruit earned enough money with a small contribution from my father to get a one-way ticket back and basically bet everything on that one interview. And what Oxford did, what my tutor, Marion Dawkins, did when I kind of turned up in her office and I did this interview, is she basically took a bet on me. And she waived the entrance requirements, which apparently you could do, but in extraordinary circumstances, and basically let me in, despite the fact that I didn't fulfill all the entry criteria. And I owe her a huge debt. I mean, I, it was a good bet in the when I got there, I did well academically, but it was a huge bet on her. So, I mean, she wasn't to know that. I mean, she probably was somebody that she believed was clever, but she made a huge bet on me. And she could very easily have said, no, I'm very conscious of that. Do you keep in touch with her? I do, I do indeed. Uh, so I've seen her, you know, several times. I've talked to her, I've thanked her about it. Um, in fact, I wrote an essay for my college magazine, and she very kindly wrote a little bit on it as as well. And and in fact, just kind of talked about the fact that it's harder now to do that than it used to be in the in the past. It's one of the consequences of the push that we've had in the UK to get university entrants to be more diverse. One of the consequences of it is that it's become a bit more bureaucratic, the entrance process, and I strongly support it being more diverse. But unfortunately, one of the consequences is these wild cards are a bit harder to play. But yes, I have kept in touch with her, and I, you know, I'm very conscious I owe her and I owe my college at Oxford a debt because they together made a bet on this very strange kid who turned up, and I was wearing a long wool skirt that I'd sewed myself carrying a photo album full of pictures of whales and dolphins that I'd taken off the boat. I mean, I was quite an extraordinary thing when I turned up for this interview. She must look back on that and say, man, I am so glad I made that decision because of the way things turned out. It's amazing. You learned how to sail a boat by being on the boat all those years, but you have since officially become a qualified and certified sailor. Why did you do that? I think I had... Something that lots of people, you know, people call it imposter syndrome. I think I worried that I, here I was, I was writing a book about a childhood at sea, but I hadn't really been back to sea very much since I'd left the boat. And there were a couple of reasons for that. One was when I came back to the UK, the opportunities to go sailing were very limited. I didn't have very much money. In fact, I was incredibly poor when I came back to the UK because my parents, shortly after I came back, they disowned me, so I was poverty stricken. So I didn't really, I didn't have the sort of money that would enable you to go sailing. 
And then I was busy getting on with my life, you know, starting a career, meeting my uh, husband, having kids and so on. But when I came to write the book, I felt I've got to, that's why I need to reconnect with the sea to be able to write about it in a vivid way. And secondly, I had this imposter syndrome thing of, yes, of course, I know how to sail. I mean, it's fits, you know, I, I could, I could kind of, for me, it's almost in my blood, but I don't think I ever learned the correct language for it. I mean, we had our own language on the boat. Because we had so many novice crew on board, my father very rarely used the technical terms for anything because we would, for example, we color-coded the ropes on the masts so that my father could go pull the red, you know, pull the red rope on the short mast or pull the red rope on the tall mast so people would know what they had to do. So I didn't know the names of the correct names of all the ropes. But if I was going to write a book, I needed to do that because I knew that sailors would read the book and they would expect that. So that's why I did it. I have to say it was pretty touch and go whether I would get the Yachtmaster qualification. It's a very tough qualification, far tougher than I had expected, but, um, <laughs> but I'm glad I did. I'm just picturing all of those novice crew members who would get on their next boat and none of those colors were on the lines. <laughs> they don't know what to do at that point, you know? I know, I know. You've said that by going public with this story and writing the book, you might sacrifice the relationship with your parents. And of course, you've just mentioned that they eventually disowned you. Do you have any relationship at all with them today? No, none at all. So, I mean, my, my parents multi disowned me multiple times in my life. I mean, my father once threw me off the boat on an island. He obviously, he and my mum left my brother and me behind in New Zealand. He disowned me actually several times when I was in university, which meant that I was poverty stricken because I wasn't eligible to get a grant because we'd lived away from the UK for so long. And most recently, he walked out on me in 2019 after demanding, there's quite a few swear words involved, that I shouldn't publish my book. He hadn't read the book, but of course he knew enough about the story to fear that if I wrote what, you know, my, how I'd experienced Wavewalker, that he might not come across in the way that he wanted to come across. Now, I knew when I started to write the book that this was a risk, that my, because my parents had never had any tolerance for anyone criticizing them, even in the most minor way. I'd once had a conversation with my father where my late husband had asked, who was it who really helped me get into university? And my father has always had this story that he told everybody that he got me into university. He was the one who got me into Oxford, which, of course, was never true. But in his mind, that's how it happened, right? In his mind, that's what happened. And that was based on the fact that we had one conversation before I flew back to the UK where he gave me a bit of advice on interview technique. And he always thought that he got me into Oxford. And that's what he, that was his story. And I said, when, when my husband asked me, well, the person who really helped me get into Oxford was Roger, who was my biology teacher in the correspondence school, who, by the way, was an amazing man who would send me books in New Zealand, helped me with those essays. I mean, he really, I owe him a debt as well. And my father was so angry at this answer that he got up, swore repeatedly and kicked one of my kitchen chairs across the kitchen, slammed it into the cupboards. And he and my mother stormed out of the house and we didn't hear from them for months. So I knew that if I wrote 
any sort of version of the past that had any sort of truth in it that was even the mildest way interpretable as a criticism, they would never forgive me. And in a funny sort of way, that was hugely releasing because I basically had to make a decision. I was either going to write the book or I wasn't going to write it. There wasn't a middle way. There was no middle way possible. I mean, there was no need for me to write the book in a nasty way. I don't think I have. In fact, I've, you know, a number of people have told me it's actually very mild towards them in some ways, but there was no point in me trying to make it in a way that would be palatable. And then what actually happened was they reacted even worse than I expected them to. You know, sadly, my mum passed away in 2016 after I'd started kind of writing the book and she left me a very unpleasant letter where she threatened to try and destroy my husband's career if I published the book. And my father walked out on me and my kids in 2019, uh, by which point I was a, a widow because sadly I lost my, my husband. But I don't feel any regret about that. This was a choice that I made. I, I wrote the book knowing that that would happen and realizing that actually the relationship that I was probably going to lose with them, and it would be their choice, not mine, but the relationship I was going to lose with them wasn't a relationship that actually brought me very much happiness or brought me, you know, it wasn't a relationship that I could rely on. I, I didn't know that they would ever be there if I needed them. And I didn't really think they particularly cared about me. So yes, I, yes, I have, but I feel very happy with the decision that I took. What struck me was that your parents were living their dream, particularly your dad, and weren't really considering the physical and social toll that it would have on you and John. But ironically, your mother often accused you of being selfish because you wanted to study and do homework instead of clean the boat or prepare a meal, you know, or, or one of those tasks or chores that you always had to do. Um, I don't know where I'm going with that. I didn't have a question. <laughs> Just a thought that I had. I agree with you. I think there is a theme all the way through the book. In fact, if I had to pick, there's probably two really important themes that kind of come out of the book. But the first one is this idea that for me, my, my entire childhood was spent inside somebody else's dream. And my father was following his passion. This was something he wanted to do. I think it was all about being a hero. It was all about doing something extraordinary, being recognized as that. And this was his dream. And what he didn't seem to recognize, or if he recognized that he didn't ever want to acknowledge it or, or do anything about it, was the people who were sacrificing for that dream were me and my brother and to some extent my mother. And in fact, we had the opposite of freedom. You know, whereas he had kind of complete freedom on this boat, he could pick up the anchor and sail wherever he wanted, wherever, whenever he wanted to do. And by the way, he often did that. You know, my parents would fall out with somebody and they'd up the anchor and they would kind of sail away. Every time we left a port, my father would throw all of the parking tickets in the water. I don't think he paid any taxes from the moment that we left the UK. So they lived this life. They could go anywhere they wanted any moment in time, walk away from any situation that they disliked. What I had was imprisonment because I was on this boat. I had no say in where we were going. As I often didn't know where we were going. I would sometimes beg my father to stop so I could see in a port where I knew there would be a friend or somebody on another boat or somebody I knew. And he often would you know, not want to do that, You know, usually would not want to do that. I don't think he ever really took my 
needs into consideration. I mean, I don't remember a single time in my childhood where he changed course in order to help me or to do something that was helpful for me. So this was his dream and his freedom. And what it created was my imprisonment. And one of the reasons for writing the book is to kind of create this debate about, well, where do parents' rights have to have some sort of balance with children's rights? And I don't think it should be an extreme either way, but there's got to be a balance somewhere there in the middle. And a good parent would recognize that there's a balance and, and find where that is. Do you ever see or talk to John anymore? So I did for many years. My brother remained very close to my parents. Uh, in fact, when my parents came back to the UK, they all lived in a, in a kind of house together. And my brother and I never really fell out, but we were never very close because we were treated in such different ways as children. And so we really remained quite separate for most of our adult lives. I think his experience on Wavewalker was really very different to mine because he was treated in such a different way to how I was treated. And I completely kind of recognize that. I don't kind of dispute that um, in the slightest. I feel slightly sad that when I've tried to talk to him about what it was like to be me, he hasn't really wanted to have that conversation. But fundamentally, you know, this was not about him. This was, you know, it wasn't his choice to be on the boat and it wasn't my brother who chose to keep sailing. So this for me is much more about the decisions that my parents made. Today, you're the chief operating officer of a large holding company in the Netherlands, based in the Netherlands. Do you attribute any of your business success with the challenges that you had in your childhood? I do. There's quite a lot of evidence, interestingly, that people who have escaped from difficult childhoods often end up being very resilient people. Now, I don't think you'd ever want to go through the sort of childhood that I went through in order to become resilient. And a lot of children who have very difficult childhoods don't manage to escape or are very damaged by it. So I consider myself incredibly lucky that A, I managed to escape, and B, I managed to escape not with no scars. I think I have quite a few scars, some kind of physical and some kind of mental, but basically able to kind of get on with my life. And I have escaped with some real strengths and one of them is resilience and for me the way in which it plays out is when I've been really faced by a difficult challenge so for example I had to step in and be the CEO of a very large company during the COVID years because uh, that the kind of CEO who'd been there had to step out it was very challenging people were very stressed but for me when I'm in a situation like that I can take myself back to being a seven-year-old girl sitting on a boat in the middle of the Indian Ocean with a fractured skull with no control over my life, with years ahead of me with no control, and it puts everything into proportion. Because now I'm an adult, I'm not physically threatened, I can, I can deal with this, you know, I can work my way through it. And so I find when I'm confronted by very difficult situations, I become very calm and very rational. And that is a huge asset, has been a huge asset to me throughout my career, that I can do that in those circumstances. The price I paid in my childhood was not worth this benefit, uh, but it definitely is a benefit, which I, I kind of recognize. I can picture you in a business stressful environment, looking back on your childhood and thinking, hey, I can do hard things. I can handle this. 
And you're obviously not just skilled in business, but you're also a very skilled writer. And I really enjoyed the book. Can you talk about your book and where people can get it? Absolutely. So I think Wavewalker is now available in all good bookstores. It has sold out a couple of times on Amazon in the US because there's been a lot more demand than HarperCollins had expected, which I suppose is a good thing. Frustratingly, it means it's occasionally um, has occasionally gone out of stock. There's a big reprint coming uh, later on this month, but it's still available in all good bookstores. Uh, so you'll find it all over the place, all the indie bookstores as well. You'll find it on Kindle and Audible. I actually read it myself on Audible, which was a, a great experience, actually. Although I did end up hoarse for about a week afterwards. So it's widely available. I really hope that people enjoy it. And what's interesting is, although the setting of it is extraordinary, I'm finding a lot of readers really relate to different bits of it, whether it's the interpersonal relationships that went on in the family or some elements of the places that we went to or some of the adventures that we experienced. So I hope people really enjoy it. I definitely enjoyed it. I actually walked into my local Barnes & Noble, which we happen to still have here, and got it right off the shelf. So, um, yeah, I would encourage people. It's wonderfully written. And, of course, obviously lots of details of the story that we couldn't go through here on the podcast. But, uh, Suzanne, thanks so much for telling your story. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. You can see pictures of Suzanne and her family and the boat they all lived on in the episode notes at whatwasthatlike.com slash 166. You know, Suzanne's story was brought to my attention because of listeners. On the same day, someone posted a link in the Facebook group and another person messaged me directly saying, hey, this would be a good story for the podcast. So if you come across something you think might work, please let me know. I mentioned at the top of the show that I have an announcement about the podcast. So what's going on? Well, I want to introduce you to Meredith, my new producer. Meredith is a podcaster herself, and she's going to be helping me put some episodes together. So since you'll be hearing her voice on some segments, and you'll probably hear her doing some of the ads, you should know a little bit about her. She's from Nebraska, but now lives in North Florida. She was named one of Podcast Magazine's 40 Under 40 in 2022, and she loves hanging out with her husband at the beach. And something I didn't know about her, she knows sign language. I used to be a sign language interpreter, actually. I learned a few basic signs by myself with books when I was little, and then a church that I was going to offered classes. So I took some classes there, and then by the time I got to high school, there happened to be a few deaf girls at my high school, and we became friends. That's how I learned most of my sign language, but I became an interpreter when I invited the friend to church and just, I don't know, I sat next to her thinking, yeah, she's just going to absorb this message magically. She elbowed me so hard in the ribs and said, hey, are you going to interpret for me or what? <laughs> That's how I began interpreting. I later got QAST certified by the state of Nebraska and was a real interpreter. If you're in the Facebook group, you know I ask a new thought-provoking question every Tuesday. So I asked Meredith one of those questions. When you were a child, what did you get the most excited about? I was obsessed with nature as a kid. When my parents' friends would come over, I would take them by the hand and drag them to my room to tour the nature museum where I would have a row of rocks and seashells lined up. 
each carefully labeled with their, you know, their names. But if I didn't know their names, because remember, this is pre-internet, I would give them a name, a human name. So you'd have, oh, this is a varied coquina next to this is Bob the Rock. And Meredith's podcast is called Meredith for Real. And she talks to guests about a lot of different things, sometimes things you might not normally hear about. I've been a listener to her show for a while. She calls herself the curious introvert. And I think her natural curiosity is something that she and I have in common. I explore, with the help of a guest, taboo topics through nuanced conversations. So think of questions that you might be too afraid to Google, like, how do I know if I'm an alcoholic? Or questions that just Google can't answer, like, are trigger warnings helping us heal or making us fragile? The goal is to inspire active curiosity instead of canceling or just, you know, snapped judgments. And yeah, it's very ADD friendly since the topics are different week to week. But I do cover a lot of health and wellness, science and tech, love and relationships. And although some of the topics are kind of out there, like aliens, I try to keep it pretty tethered. Tethered fun. How's that for a nerdy explanation? So that's Meredith. You can find her show on any podcast app. Just search for Meredith for Real. I'm already enjoying working with her, and she's going to help me make what was that like even better going forward. Graphics for this episode were created by Bob Bretz. Full episode transcription was created by James Lye. And finally, we're at this week's listener story. You have a story? I know you do, because everyone does. It can be anything interesting that happened to you that you can tell in about five to ten minutes. Just record it on your phone and email it to scott at whatwasthatlike.com. This one is from a listener who was at work and the completely unexpected happens. Stay safe and I'll be back here in a week with our next flashback episode. Uh, this took place in about 1994. At the time, I was editing TV commercials, and this one was sort of like a high-end fashion brand, and I also helped do the graphic design and animation, like sketched it out. The director was like a big deal, had won an Oscar for costume design on a big movie, and this was her first directing gig. So it was kind of big pressure. And we sort of do what's called offlining, which means we do a, a cut, but it's low resolution. It's not polished. We needed to polish up and really make the graphics look great and make them pop and just the best they can be. And so we hired a video effects person who was like one of the best in, in the city. This was in New York City. Everybody loved him. His name was Grant. I had a relationship with him, and he was just great. And so the next day, I show up bright and early for the video effects studio, which is basically Grant sitting at a million-dollar console doing his work. The thing about Grant is, unlike many others, you don't have to pipe in. You don't have to give him direction. He just does it. So I'm just going to lie there on the couch. The art director was there, and one other person, and I'm not sure, it might have been Grant's assistant. It was really boring. Hours go by and Grant's just doing his work and we're just sitting there. It was after a few hours and Grant went, <gasps> and the art director said, yeah, it's like watching paint dry. And then 
Grant just threw back his head, his arms threw back, and he slumped in his chair. They laughed because they thought he was continuing this joke. But I knew something was wrong. And I got up and I went to look at his face because we were sitting behind him. And his eyes were completely dilated. His skin was turning blue. And I said, okay, Grant, we're going to deal with this. And then I got the art director to help me get him laid out on the floor. I don't know. Maybe that was the wrong thing. I don't know. I wasn't really confident about my CPR skills. So I knew the people in the next room. I knew the editor and I asked him if he knew. And he said, yeah, I said, come with me. And he went in with Grant. I went to the front desk and I told them what's going on and to call 911. The other editor kept working on him and eventually the paramedics arrived and they worked on him for a while. It was just a shock. The whole place, you know, everyone's work stopped in all the sessions and all the rooms. And he was taken out in a stretcher, but not with a sheet over his face. So I thought maybe he would be okay or he'd have a chance. Well, we obviously couldn't continue the session, so I ended up going home and I was shaking. I did get a call from the owner of the company that Grant had died. I got a call from the Big Shot director. It was very nice and asked if I was okay and how she knew Grant's work and how wonderful it was. And she knew he was like popular, a really nice person and people really valued him. And I really appreciated that because otherwise she could be pretty tough. The part that I regret is it came time for his funeral and I was getting ready to go. And then I didn't. Maybe it was laziness and selfishness or unconsciously, I just couldn't handle it. I regret that to this day. Hey, this is Scott. Did you know we offer a premium feed of this show that is completely ad-free and there are bonus episodes? Go to whatwasthatlike.com slash plus or just click the link in the show notes of any episode to learn more and to sign up. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, you can sign up right there in the app by clicking try free at the top of the episode list. And I hope to see you in the premium feed soon.